I'm Lynn Wolf, and welcome to this edition of our Rural Lifestyle Dealer podcast series. Today, we're tackling the subject of succession planning, a topic where you might be tempted to say, I'll worry about that next year or in five years. However, not having a plan in place could be devastating for your family, your employees, and a fatal mistake for your dealership. Rex Collins, a principal at HBK CPAs and Consultants, shares what he's seen over and over again when working with dealers. There are a number of reasons that dealers resist succession planning. Lots of reasons. Oftentimes it's fear, fear of death, fear of family confrontations. Sometimes the dealer's spouse has an idea of of which siblings they want to have involved or they want everyone treated, all of the siblings treated the same, where the dealer principal may know that one or two of the siblings is stronger than the others and needs to be in charge. There's also costs. There's a lack of an identifiable successor. Uh, There's a lot of things that need to be considered. Collins also says that despite an aging dealer body, only about 25% of all U.S. dealers have a succession plan in place at all. Listen in to our discussion as Collins leads us through some real-life examples they may offer ideas for you. And thank you to Yanmar for bringing us this podcast. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today, Rex. And what we're looking at is succession planning. But you had mentioned that that dealers need to think in terms of succession of ownership as well as succession of leadership. So can you explain a little bit more about those two approaches? Sure thing, Lynn. Hard as it may be to hear, dealers can't run their dealerships forever. Every dealership gets transferred, if not before, then at the owner's death. At some point, there will be a time where you as a dealer are going to want or need to step aside. And when that day comes, you're going to need to be prepared. Turning over leadership in the dealership is not a simple task. It requires years of careful preparation. It requires a succession plan. This succession plan is a detailed strategy that identifies potential leadership successors within the dealership and and positions them to lead while slowly also transitioning out your leadership over a certain period of time. It's also important to stress, Lynn, that, that this succession plan really must be part of your dealership's overall strategic plan. Also, Designed to streamline the transition process, a succession plan ensures a strong business leaves one owner's hands and remains strong under the next owner. You don't want your business to lose value the instant your child or a longtime employee takes control. One of the things that, uh, that I like to stress to dealers is that it may not be the best long-term plan to have your family, your, your children, oper- operating the business, although we may want to preserve the wealth, the family wealth that that business represents. So what we do frequently is we'll design a succession plan where ownership succession stays in the family and leadership or management succession stays where it's backhandled amongst those strong leaders within the business or within the industry. The reason that, it's, that dealers are, should be concerned about handing over the business to a family member who's not otherwise prepared to do it 
is because it, it, it's very selfish, quite honestly, Lynn. Many times, future payments to support that dealer's retirement are are tied to the future success of the dealership. That can be rent payments, the director's fees, deferred compensation, uh, even carrying the note that the children are would be paying you. Um, it would depend upon the dealership being there. So the dealership has to survive and thrive in order to make all of these payments. For succession planning to work, the owner, as well as the su- successor, must be specific in their expectations. And we suggest that uh, both parties agree, for example, on how much time the outgoing dealer, the exiting dealer, is going to spend with the successor management to mentor them, to uh, bring them up to speed, uh, to how long they're going to work together. A second item is how are conflicts going to be resolved? Because they do come up between the incoming and outgoing uh, dealer. And then who's going to make which decisions? You know, Lynn, I've got an example here that we worked through uh, with a client, and I'd I'd like to talk about it uh, briefly. Uh, Those seem to be the most impactful uh, for uh, when I'm speaking to dealers. We had a dealer that we worked with, uh, Jim, in, uh, and he was, uh, he's 69 years old. He's got no plans to retire immediately. And his view is like a lot of my dealer clients view, which is my hobby is my dealership. Um, but about 25 years ago, Jim started planning to ensure that his family would be financially secure when he died. Okay. So that's estate planning. That's making sure as Jim, Jim wanted to say, that his family wasn't in the uh, enduring any hardships either financially uh, or otherwise. So uh, he did that about 25 years ago. About 10 years ago, he began grooming his sons to take over after they expressed an interest in the dealership. And a few years ago, he hired us to arrange a legal and orderly management transition for when he exits the business. One of the problems a lot of people have with transition planning, both financially and personally, is that they have to be able to contemplate their own death or at least contemplate giving up control. Realistically, both things have to happen, so you might as well face facts and do it. Without proper succession planning, a dealer could leave behind a legacy of litigation and failed business and family relationships. That's why we recommend that our dealer clients start at about age 50 in looking at succession planning. I've got another dealer client that we worked with, and in in this uh, example, the store was founded in the 50s by um, my client's father and and his two brothers, two uncles. Um, So the first uncle uh, died a long, long time ago, as well as the father. Now, the second uncle died it's been approximately 10 years now. Um, the second uh, uncle had gotten remarried, so he had a second wife, what I've frequently called the step-aunt. And the step-aunt had no background in business whatsoever and certainly didn't understand dealerships. The uncle did no succession planning, however, did estate planning. And his estate planning attorney did a great job. When the uncle died, there was no estate tax due. However, They did no succession planning, and ultimately, 
the family ended up having to sell the business, not because bills were due or not because of other problems, but because it was not set up with the proper leadership and the understanding by all the parties involved as to who was the leader and what authority that they had and the operational authority uh, as well. And through the estate planning process that uh, that the uncle had done, he basically, which is a common tech, left his ownership into a trust. The nephew, my client, who was operating the, the dealership, owned about 15%, would end up with 51% uh, after the trust was dissolved. And the trust was around for the life of the step aunt and providing income to her out of the trust. And upon her death, the trust was the the stock was distributed out of the trust. And in my client, the nephew would end up with 51% or control. Here's the problem. The second wife of the uncle, the step aunt, happened to be roughly the same age as the nephew. As happens frequently, the second aunt is is off or the second wife is oftentimes a tad younger than the uh, the first wives and so forth. And that was the case in this case. So realistically, the nephew, my client, most likely was going to die before the step aunt died and would never end up with ownership and control. And his family, his side of the, the family, again, there were three, three brothers that started this, would, in essence, not end up with the entire value. It was a tragedy. They also, because I mentioned earlier that uh, leaving behind a legacy of litigation and torn up family relationships, well, guess what? This dealer spent, the dealership spent about $600,000 a year in legal fees uh, fighting with the step aunt and the trust. And my understanding is the step aunt uh, spent uh, about double that in legal fees each year. So it was a tremendous financial uh, strain, as well as talking about Thanksgiving dinners being strained. Uh, that was there as well. What we were able to do for, for this client was the dealer, we explored ESOPs, we explored a lot of different transition uh, succession plans for getting ownership and cashed out and those types of things. None of that really worked. What we ended up doing was uh, we did a, a valuation of, of the dealership. We came up with a number. Uh, the dealer then met with uh, a broker. And our number was about 20, 20, 22% higher than what the broker thought that he could sell the business for, the dealership for. The dealer came to me, told me this, and the first thing I think is, oh my, I've made a mistake, what do I do? And so, uh, Lynn, I went back and I looked at, at what we had done and I said, you know, I think I'm right. So I went to the dealer and said, said just that. I think, I think my number's right. I think the broker is, is going to uh, go out there with an asking price. And that was his asking price that was 20 or 22% lower than mine. But we thought it was going to be too low. The dealer looked at me and said, okay, you think, you think it's not the right number? Find me a buyer. Well, we did. We found him two buyers. We took the lesser of the two offers. And we ended up closing the deal. Um, so we, we can cry over the fact that uh, the dealers had to sell the business in order to keep some uh, degree of family strife to a minimum but they had to sell the business to do that. Well, don't cry too much because we ended up with a very big payday for the, the nephew, the step aunt and everyone concerned. 
we closed the deal at about 26, 27% higher than what that original asking price was. But that was one solution, which was selling the business and converting the problem asset to cash and, uh, and allowing everyone to go their, their own way, if you will. Um, one of the things that I'll point out here is one of the first steps in doing succession planning is wrapping your arms around what you've got, doing evaluation. Don't shortcut it uh, by doing a rule of thumb or guessing or anything, because you've got one chance at doing this and doing this right. And what I would stress is the importance of using a firm, determine the value like, like we did in, in coming up with the right value. Otherwise, uh, if you use by the does not understand your business, you, you could end up uh, underselling uh, the business or even from coming up with a value for family transitions or employee transitions, you can't leave money on the table that you, you can't afford or don't want to. The real life examples Rex has just explained show that you have a lot of options to customize a succession plan for your dealership. Perhaps the biggest hurdle is just dedicating time to get started. Here's more from Rex. You know, uh, Lynn, there are a number of reasons that dealers resist succession planning. Lots of reasons. Oftentimes it's fear, fear of death, fear of family confrontations. Sometimes the dealer's spouse has an idea of, of which sibling they want to have involved, or they want everyone treated, all of the siblings treated the same, where the dealer principal may know that one or two of the siblings is stronger than the others and needs to be in charge. There's also costs. There's a lack of an identifiable successor. Uh, there's a lot of things that need to be considered. But despite an aging dealer body, only about a quarter of all U.S. dealers uh, have a succession plan in place at all. And I'll tell you that most of those seem to be simply estate planning. What, what we're really trying to get to is is a guarantee for your family. And, and what good planning does is it guarantees that your family is going to keep the dealership if that is the desire. Um, and, uh, and that we'll do it in a way that um, uh, monetizes uh, the value for your retirement. Most dealers have their most, their most significant asset, their bulk of their wealth, is their dealership. And so that's got to be monetized if you're going to maintain your lifestyle through retirement. Just one question on that in terms of the idea of only 25% having a plan. And, and um, I imagine within the other group, there's people within that dealership that know they need a succession plan. Is the idea in terms of getting the discussion started to bring up those two points that you just brought up is, although it might be unpleasant to talk about death or losing control, but the idea is to, to keep it in the family and to plan for retirement. Would those be two main points to, to bring up the idea of succession planning in within a family? They, they are. And, you know, the other one that, that we often talk about is the un, unknown. Uh, what if you became disabled as the dealer principal? What's going to happen? And you're no longer able to to make the decisions and what happens with your manufacturer relationships. Some of the manufacturers uh, will pull franchises. They have, they feel they have the authority to do that. And now uh, that single biggest asset has been pulled from you unless you have a succession plan. So you're not only talking about, uh, about yourselves, but you're talking about the family legacy as well, Lynn, you know, and along those lines, you, you really need to uh, really need to focus on training that successor. 
uh, if we do our right job, we are meeting with the family, we're raising those questions that are difficult, we're getting those answers, okay? And we're also identifying whether it's a family member or a non-family member, who the next leadership in the, in the organization is. Oftentimes we play referee in that. Um, so it may be difficult with the dad and, and the family to have, dad, mom, family to have the discussion. We can uh, play intermediary of sorts and we can be the bad guy raising the questions so that uh, again, everyone can have Thanksgiving dinner together. Yeah, so you know that's, that's important. Really just turning over the business to a new owner uh, that's really easy, but doing it at the right price and in a way that preserves the continuity of the business and family harmony, that's really what is, is the most challenging. Making a specific plan to define the dealer as well as the successor's expectations and roles is critical. And those successors, again, are both ownership successors and management successors, and they don't need to be, be the same. We, we worked with a dealer um, in the Midwest recently. We started the, the discussions. He was age 52. And we went through this whole process. And the last step in our process of doing the session plan is have a contingency plan. What happens if I get disabled uh, you know, or die prematurely? What's going to happen? Let's have that contingency plan. Well, this dealer had a little bit of health care. He's fine. Everything's good. But uh, within a year and a half or so after we had, uh, had met, done our planning, and developed this contingency plan, um, he called me and said, look, I've had a little health scare. I'm fine, but I don't think I want to do this anymore. I don't think I want to be here. Is, uh, didn't have uh, sons or daughters in the business and so forth. So we launched our, our contingency plan, which for him was let's find a buyer let's get it sold. And as, uh, as, uh, as the circumstances would have it, that transaction, we closed that transaction last Saturday. So um, uh, it all worked out uh, well for him. He's out of the business, doesn't have that stress anymore. I believe his doctor's happy with him for doing it. I know his wife is very happy with him for doing it. And uh, he's going to, uh, he's going to do something else now, uh, which is good. But we met that goal and we did it by doing the planning early and having that contingency plan. We'll rejoin the discussion, but I did want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Yanmar, for making this program possible. Yanmar continuously strives to exceed customer expectations and deliver exceptional lifetime value. Visit them at yanmartractor.com backslash new dealer inquiry. Next up in our discussion with Rex Collins of HBK CPAs and Consultants, we look at the topics of bringing in outside leadership and funding the dealer's retirement. So I have a question about the idea of, you know, the owners and the managers as part of the succession plan. What are you finding in terms of being successful with bringing in new managers or are they mostly coming from within the dealership? Because I imagine it's hard to bring in somebody who has a dealership experience. But so what are some of those scenarios for finding um, a new management team with the family retaining ownership? Right, right. Well, yeah, what we've done, and we've done, uh, we've done both of those, actually, but you're correct. Most of the time, uh, the dealer uh, can help us identify the leader uh, within the organization. 
and uh, we will develop a. Um, we oftentimes use a phantom stock program uh, to uh, which is which is not stock, so they don't have stockholder rights, and so the employee does not have ownership, true ownership. But he's got a bonus program, very heavy compensation program, a huge incentive that pays him based on the growth and value of the business over the time that he's there. There's typically a vesting period for that. And he gets income on an annual basis as if he were an owner of that 10, 20, 25, whatever that percentage is of phantom stock. Uh, so it's like he's an owner. He gets uh, he gets an ownership distribution as part of his compensation. But more important to that, long-term, and this is why we keep him, if the value of the dealership grows or if ultimately 10, 15, 20 years from now, the next generation of owners sell the business, he gets paid 20, 25% of those proceeds before the family uh, can split the others, whatever that uh, phantom stock represents. And 25% would be a, a pretty large phantom stock investment, quite honestly, um, if you will. But it's, it's another way. It is a way to keep the most important key employee that you have in that business that the dealer needs to know that because needs to handle that because he knows the family members have no desire or do not have the ability to come back into the business. Uh, so you've got to have that continuity there. So that's important. Getting uh, to the other side of your equation, bringing someone in from the outside. I worked with a dealer. Again, this happened to be in the Midwest as well. But um, I worked with a dealer who, in a small town, uh, really the, it was a small dealership, not a real good market for it, probably wasn't going to be. Uh, a candidate to be bought by anyone, uh, you know, any existing dealers around him or anything. And in that case, we brought in someone from the outside. Now, this individual from the outside was a very strong manager. And so I, I likened it to dating and getting engaged and getting married. What I did was I made an introduction. We brought in, actually I did more than an introduction. I brought in Scott to come and work for my dealer client. Scott, the plan with Scott was that he was going to buy into the dealership, um, and that was going to be my client's exit strategy was now we created an exit strategy for him. What it amounted to for Scott was Scott, as is, as is the case with most uh, uh, employees of dealerships, they don't have a, a lot of independent wealth and can't come up with enough money to buy the store. But what Scott had was, was he did have some money. He had a, enough money that it was a significant investment for him. It was a, it was a small investment from the dealer's perspective. But what it showed was that Scott was putting all his chips in the table. He was, he was fully invested in buying the store. So what we worked out was, was that investment came in. With regards to the real estate, we had a requirement that the dealership was rented from my dealer client for 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, Scott had to buy the real estate. So my client didn't end up with a single purpose facility and, and Scott buying the business and exiting the facility. And then we also ended up with an, uh, the buyout of the business where Scott was able to build some sweat equity and buy out uh, the dealership, the dealer principal. The dealer principal started fading away, didn't, wasn't as active in the business. And Scott got an operator's bonus. 
and bought stock with it. He had his down payment he bought stock with. And then the proceeds from the profits for each year, he turned that around and bought bought stock as well. So we've manuf- we've done both, uh, Lynn. We've manufactured a buyer is what we did in that, in that case. So how do, in some of these cases, what is the best way for then for the owners who aren't involved with the daily management, how are they interacting then with these, this new management team? Is it you know, quarterly meetings like a board of directors or, or what have you found that works best? Yeah, what we, what we like to have is, is a uh, board of advisors uh, is what I call it. It's not an official entity like a board of directors, but it's an advisory group. And it's made up of uh, sometimes it's a dealer from a different geographic area that the dealer may know and respect. So I happen to be sitting in Boston right now uh, at a dealer client of mine. We may have someone from Colorado that is same line make or something that is a lot of respect. We may put him on the board as this advisory board. We may put other business people from the area that are on the advisory board. We'll put other advisors, both financial and non-financial, on this board. And what it's there for is after the dealer exits, this advisory board is there to support and mentor, continue the mentoring process for the leaders and the owners, which are these could be two different sets of people. And by doing that, uh, it's not a sink or swim mentality. Obviously, as long as the dealer is involved, he takes on that role of, of primary mentor. Uh, but big decisions, there's someone that the, the successor dealer operator, the successor leader, uh, there's, there's a group of people that they've gotten some comfort with and uh, can uh, rely upon for advice in operating and making crossing bridges as they come up in, uh, in the operational uh, workings of the dealership. And then we also, we would have, and sometimes it's the same group that would be an advisory group for the, um, the children, uh, you know, the heirs uh, that are there so that they understand uh, how difficult it is, what's really going on in the business and um, that there's not a lot of extra cash flow, for example. Uh, to pay a lot of dividends out and so forth. And in terms of the of all the steps uh, for succession, should we talk a little bit more about the the funding of the transfer? And you know, and you had mentioned some of the uh, the recent example of you know a, a new manager not having a lot of funds to coming coming in and and having some sweat equity. Can you talk more about this whole idea of funding and then planning for the retirement? We recently worked with a dealer on the East Coast uh, for this very purpose. And he had identified uh, his manager, and uh, he did not have family. He had, he has family as uh, two sons. Uh, the sons are are really not capable of operating the business. And so, what we've done here is we have identified the leader. The leader's been there for a while. We have worked up a program. It's got several moving parts to it. So this may may sound a little complicated, but it's, but it's not all that complicated. And, and part of the reason that, it, that we've used different pieces is for security, uh, for family, uh, for the dealer and his family. It's to minimize taxes frequently, uh, because as I, as I like to say, it's not about what you make, but it's about what you keep. So if we're designing a plan that, where we generate a lot of taxable income and we don't have to, that doesn't make sense. Uh, so, at any rate, what, we've, what we did 
in this case was we designed a plan that uh, started off with a deferred compensation agreement. And what we looked at was this business was built by the dealer. But as most dealers do, they reinvest all the profits back into the dealership, grow it, make it bigger, and, and make it more successful. Well, if I were an employee, I would be getting bonuses. I would be uh, you know, getting potentially even a deferred compensation agreement as an employee of, of, of an organization. Well, what we did was we established um, at market rates uh, a deferred compensation uh, program for the, for the dealer for his past services. And uh, so we funded part of the retirement uh, through the deferred compensation. Well, that deferred compensation is an obligation of the business. Well, now you've taken the value of the business and we've added a pretty substantial obligation onto it. So the net value is lower. And we then have lowered that so that because of that lower price, now we've got something that the buyer, this leadership leader, can look at affording to buy and buy in. Because the, uh, we had the discussions with the two sons of the dealer, they don't have any interest in the business, and they would be quite happy uh, just getting cash out. So that's ultimately what's going to happen. My dealer principal wants to work for a few more years, so this deferred compensation agreement isn't going to kick off until he retires, but we've got it in place so that if something does happen, he has some health issues as well, so we need to be cognizant. We also have uh, the real estate, and we've got an, uh, we have uh, included in the real estate a management fee that will fund uh, my dealer's retirement. So the dealer is going to continue owning the real estate. Uh, the uh, successor will have an obligation to buy the real estate at the end, as I said earlier in another example. The, the wife will um, uh, be the manager if something should happen to the dealer. Uh, so that income will continue on. With the deferred compensation agreement, we had rights of survivorship in with that. So if my uh, dealer principal with health issues passes away prematurely, uh, the obligation will still continue and it'll be paid to the spouse over the term. So the money's getting paid. The rent, in addition to the management fee, but there's a rent uh, component and a portion of that rent will go to the owner, all of it to begin with, and then over time, a portion of it less and less because the successor is going to be buying into the real estate entity as well. And then probably one of the key things that we did in this program was we set up a compensation package for the successor where um, the successor has a, an, a manager's bonus that he's receiving. And that manager's bonus in this example was 25% of uh, the net profit. I'm shortcutting this, but the net profit of the business prior, before LIFO, uh, 25% of the net profit. And then he's required to take the, that bonus net of any income taxes and buy the, uh, the stock from my dealer principal. We've got this all memorial. He can pay it off early if he wants to go get a bank loan. Um, it all uh, comes together and, and works out real well. Uh, it's something that the successor can get his head around and sees that the business 
can support these types of, of payments, as well as the owner, uh, the dealer, my dealer, can see that he's guaranteed he's getting paid or his uh, heirs are getting paid for the value that he's uh, developed over the years that he's grown the business to. Now, in these situations, um, it, it takes time for, for these um, plans to all play out. Um, and I know you talked about it being important, you know, in the 50s and when a dealer's in their 50 to start planning. Um, what do you say to dealers who um, are maybe well into their 60s who have not started to do any kind of succession planning? You know, how can they get things moving um, fairly quickly on some of these plans? Yeah, what it amounts to is, um, and it happens frequently, we procrastinate. And a dealer has a very, very busy and hectic life. While uh, succession planning may be extremely important, it's not that fire that's burning on their desk that day. So we end up putting it off till the weekend or that following week or the week, and then weeks turn into months and months turn into years. So I end up with dealers that are 69, 70, 71, 72 uh, years old. I'm meeting with a dealer that's 74 today. Uh, to talk about this. And uh, what I would say is we need to get started now. We can't, if we get involved, we will make sure that the procrastination doesn't occur. We'll work out a timetable. We don't, we want to be quick, but not hurry. We want to be quick in that we want to do this as expediently as possible because it's important and needs to be done. But we don't want to hurry in that we don't want to make mistakes by just hurrying it along. So we need to take the right amount of time. We met in uh, uh, the dealer I was talking about, the, the long example that I just gave, just got concluded with. Uh, we met with him in June, and in December we had the plan all done. Um, it didn't have to go that slowly. Could have gone uh, more quickly. It also could have taken a lot longer if we needed to. What I find sometimes uh, the dealers, what we're able to do is the winter time right now, it typically is a slower time uh, for most dealers. And so we will talk about this. We'll get started. We'll get, uh, here's the value. Here's some ideas on how we monetize it. Let's think about it. And then as we hit another slower time, let's say in the middle of the summer, we'll come back, we'll put it all together. And then by the following um, late, late fall when things slow down again, we may be implementing it, having all the documents drafted in between the summer and the fall, and everything goes live maybe the first of the following year. We can do it in, as I would say, as little as three months uh, to get a fully executed plan, and, uh, and as long as a dealer wants to take. But uh, typically our, when I'm doing a, a Gantt chart or a schedule, a timetable, I try to plan it within the year anyway just because it's time to get it done and the dealer knows it. Right. We've covered a lot of steps here and a lot of scenarios. And is there any parting comments that you wanted to share just on, on this whole topic and how to be successful at it? What I would say is, is really just be diligent, uh, stay focused, um, use a systematic approach. Um, you mentioned uh, the, the step one, uh, I think when you did the introduction here, but, uh, you know, step one is, is determining what this thing's worth. It's a lot of series of steps and you just need to kind of just set them up, knock them down, go through them. Doesn't mean you can't back up if you hit a roadblock, but just be diligent about con 
continually moving it forward. We've got a situation with the dealer body where we've got what I call the, the graying of the dealer body. That's reference to the hair color. Uh, so it has to happen. And um, we've got um, fewer and fewer family members that are still involved in the business or really want to be involved in the business. However, we've got other avenues. We've got, uh, if you want to monetize the investment uh, in the dealership, but in essence, you're going to sell it. Uh, there are other investors. Uh, we've got private equity groups uh, and others, uh, family offices and so forth, who are very interested in, uh, in the dealership business. Years ago, they were not interested at all because of the very cyclical nature of that business. But that seems to have, have uh, worn off. And so we've got a lot more avenues. And um, yeah, just stay diligent at what you're doing. Thank you again to Rex Collins for providing ideas for how dealers can get started on their own succession plans. He says to seek advice from experienced advisors, be prepared for delays and roadblocks, and just keep moving forward for the good of your dealership and your legacy. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yanmar, for helping make this Rural Lifestyle Dealer podcast series possible. Stay tuned for additional podcasts from our experts and dealers. From all of us at Rural Lifestyle Dealer, I'm Lynn Wolf, and thanks for listening. <music>